to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think I heard Chris Rock, the comedian, once say that you can be single and lonely or married and bored. And this would perhaps um, typify or exemplify what many in our day and age think of marriage. We live in a very hedonistic culture. Hedonistic Hedonism is just simply that pleasure is the chief end of man. As we've said many times, the Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but the hedonistic creed would simply say the chief end of man is my own personal satisfaction and pleasure. And so in many ways we we share uh, much in common with the culture in Corinth. And so today we are going to see that uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And Corinth is a, uh, is a hedonistic city. It glorifies its own natural desires. It was an, a city that glorified wisdom, it, it, worldly wisdom. It was a city that glorified um, personal autonomy and independence, that self is the highest authority. And so as we continue on in this book, um, we are going to, in chapter 7, we're going to, uh, uh, Paul deals with a lot of topics in chapter 7. And uh, so some of the some of the themes we're going to see as we move through this chapter are themes of marriage and singleness, sex and divorce and remarriage. Today we're going to focus on marriage and sex. That will be our our, our topic. And I, I know I shared with the elders as we were getting, well, we've been dealing with the, the matter of sex for quite quite some time, mostly in the church's response to um, aberrant understandings of uh, of sexual intimacy. But I, uh, I was sharing with the elders the last time we met, I said, you know, back in the, uh, the earlier part of the 21st century around, I don't know, the turn of the, you know, when we were in 2005 or something like that, it seemed like all the cool and hip churches had big topical series on you know, sex. And while we weren't one of the cool churches, and so we did, and we're only about 15, maybe two decades late on that, but that's okay. We just go through the Bible. That's just what we do. And as soon as, when a topic comes up, here it is. And so um, we're a little bit late to the party, but we've never um, uh, established ourselves as being cool and hip, and with the times, we're a little bit behind them. And that's okay. So anyways, all of that to say, today we're going to talk about marriage and sex because that's where Paul is. Um, I was going to get into the issue of singleness this week, but um, it didn't quite happen. So over the next few weeks, we'll talk about singleness, we'll talk about divorce, we'll talk about remarriage, or Paul will talk about it and I will do my best to draw out with the Holy Spirit inspired through the Apostle Paul. Now, just a word of caution before I get um, ramped up here. We need to remember here that the epistles are occasional letters. And what I mean by that is they were written for a specific occasion. 
um, and the letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians was written for a very specific purpose. And Paul is addressing very specific situations and very specific questions in this chapter. So my caution here is that Paul has not given us a detailed systematic treatise on the subjects of marriage and sex. This is a pastoral response to very specific challenges in the Corinthian church. Paul is probably going to leave a number of issues um, unstated. Now, having given you the word of caution, let me give you a word of encouragement. Just because Paul is dealing with a, um, a very specific issue, we can also still derive many truths from this chapter and these truths will enhance our view and our love for Christ and better help us to love one another. In other words, Paul is answering questions from the Corinthian church. He may not answer the questions that you have. Nevertheless, we can draw um, biblical applications from and biblical truths from these passages, and those will help us to love Christ more. So, that's kind of just a, a quick introduction of where we're going to be at for the next few weeks. So go ahead and, um, for your homework, if you will, just continue to read maybe chapters 5 through 7. If you don't have that much time, read at least chapter 7. I know this adds to Alex's homework that we're supposed to read through First Peter this week. So um, that's okay. We're just encouraging you to read the Bible. That's all. So read the Bible. Let me give you a little bit of a review, and that will prompt us to share in a little bit of a preview, and that will set up and help us to understand where Paul is going. So just a quick review. If you remember last well. Last week especially, but really beginning with chapter 5, Paul was describing a biblical view of sexual intimacy outside of marriage and how the church should respond. But especially last week, Paul addressed a very specific problem. And the problem was that the people in the Corinthian church were using this phrase, all things are lawful. In other words, I'm saved by Christ. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. And I can fulfill whatever hedonistic pleasures I want to because I've been saved by Christ. That was this, Paul was dealing with this self-indulgent attitude. And now remember that this all flowed out of a very Greek understanding of the body. This is a classic example whereas um, what we believe impacts or has an effect on how we live. This is why we're very, very firm on we teach doctrine and theology. Why? Because what you believe, you will live. And here we see the Corinthians believing something wrong, and lo and behold, their actions are contrary to what God has said. And so they were saying, listen, all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. And in our day and age, we would say, listen, I'm not under law. I'm under grace, so I can do whatever I want. And again, I would encourage you, go back and read that passage of text in Romans where it says, I'm not under law and under grace. It does not say that you can do whatever you want. We continue to maintain, as the Bible does, that the law is good. <clears throat> 
So, that was the problem. The problem is that they were using this phrase, all things are lawful, I can do whatever I want because I'm a Christian. The, the, the problem was that they believed that, the, that what one did in your body did not affect the soul. That what you do, the body, this natural person, is somehow separated from that internal spirit or soul, that eternal part of us, and that you can separate the two. And that what you do in your body has no bearing whatsoever on that eternal spiritual part of you. And Paul uh, really refutes this and turns that, that claim upside down and shows no body and soul are... Um, there is a unity between them. In fact, he points to the resurrected Christ. So anyways, you can go back and listen to that message. It's, I think it's not only on YouTube, but it's also on sermon.net. But that was what Paul is dealing with, this self-indulgent um, idea. And today, as we, go th- as, I pre- as we preview this, Paul is now going to deal with another issue. And it's the opposite issue. You know, pendulums often swing in, in extremes. And so the one extreme is all things are lawful, and so I can do whatever I want. But the opposite extreme that Paul is going to address today, where is, it could be summed up in, it is not good to touch a woman. So the opposite extreme is, is, don't have anything to do with anything that's pleasurable. And specifically in this area, sexual intimacy. And so this was an ascetic view, that pleasure is to be denied. And so Paul is going to address that. And, and this still comes from that same that same um, errant Greek idea that the, that the body is evil and the spirit is good. But what these people are saying is that I will deny my 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 body that I might be more spiritual. Are you are you with me so far? Does that does that help? I hope it helps. But that's where we are. Um and so if you will let's go ahead and I'm just going to read the first five verses of our text today and then we'll just go with it. So listen to the inerrant word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So here's the issue. As we look at marriage and intimacy, here's, here's the issue. They have a skewed view of marriage. And it flows out of their their worldview. That true spirituality, if you want to be really spiritual, the, the true spirituality involves denial of pleasure. Physical deprivation is the key to heightened spirituality. That if you want to be really spiritual, deny yourself. Deny anything that's good or enjoyable or what have you. And, and you know, we, we see this especially in the 4th century monks 
um, the, the, the early desert fathers, um, as much as I respect some of what they, they did, I think they, well, I know, they were totally wrong. They would separate. They would separate from society. Many of them thought, well, if I go live out in a cave in the desert and don't contact anybody, then, um, you know, somehow this will heighten my spiritual being. I'll be closer to God. I'll love Jesus more. Um, that type of thing. Um, I, I won't have these, these carnal desires. And they learned that wasn't the, the case. And, and we see this uh, even in throughout the church and perhaps even in some groups amongst uh, Christians that um, the denial of marriage, that it's somehow a... a it's never been considered a bad thing, but maybe a less holy thing. And so the really spiritual people are not married, like monks and priests and what have you. But the Protestant or the biblical truth has always been that marriage is a good that has been given to us by God. He invented it and he gave it to us as a gift. And so this idea that physical deprivation is the key to spirituality has um, had crept into the church. Now you'll recall that pride is the issue of this because Paul is dealing ultimately in 1 Corinthians the, 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 the root issue that Paul is addressing is that of arrogance and pride. And we saw this all the way through chapters 1 through 4 but we, and then we see it in chapters 5. He's going, Are you, aren't, you're arrogant. Your problem is that you are puffed up. You think way too highly of yourselves. Pride is at the root of this issue. Arrogance has divided the church, and now it's dividing families. Pride had had divided the church. You recall, what's the first thing that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians? Division in the church. You say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of... Barnabas, and I'm, uh, or I'm sorry, and, and, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. You're all divided. You think that your little group is more spiritual than that other group. And then in your arrogance, you, uh, you, you have divided and split. In fact, when we get into uh, chapters 12 through 14 and Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts, whatever we may determine about the, the spirit, the relevance and, and continuation or non-continuation of spiritual gifts, Paul's dealing with the issue of arrogance and pride. You guys have split yourself over these beautiful things that God has given you. The issue is that you are a split divided church. There are schisms among you and it's because of your pride. And you have one proud group saying, listen, if you're really spiritual, you can live and do whatever you want. And the other group is saying, no, we're the real spiritual people. We deny ourselves. And Paul is like, y'all are missing it. So pride is at the root of this. Arrogance has divided the church. But now what we're seeing is arrogance has hit home. The, The pride and the arrogance is dividing families. And we should not be surprised by this hellish attack because if the enemy can weaken the corporate people of God and he can weaken the family, the witness of Christ will be severely crippled. He will always go after the people of God and he will always go after families. So, this is the background uh, of their skewed view. 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So here's Paul's like going, he's received a letter from the Corinthians and we believe it came from Chloe's people. Um, a, a family, a, a person by the name of Chloe has written um, Paul and saying, here's some of our issues. Would you address some of these issues that, that, that are going on in the church? And he says, so now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of your Bibles would say not to touch a woman. And to touch a woman, uh, if that's what your translation says, is a Jewish euphemism for sexual intimacy. Paul's not saying you can't shake hands with a woman or fist bump or even maybe a, a, a side hug. But Paul's not saying you can't touch a woman. He's just, it's, it's a euphemism. So Paul is going to address that view. The view that says, do not have sexual relations with a woman, and he's going to talk about what that looks like in the realm of marriage, since that is the sphere in which um, that act is given divine approval. So Paul wants to correct this view of sexual intimacy within a marriage. First of all, you will note that Paul... Um, acknowledges the power of our appetite for sexual satisfaction and unsatisfied that desire can lead to sin. And you've got to remember, Corinth lives in a very, very promiscuous... Um, Corinth was, was very libertine. Um, in fact, worship involved temple prostitution. So it was acceptable, it was anonymous, it was not taboo, um, it was accessible. Paul is now going to help the Corinthians navigate the dangers present in their culture that are especially hazardous due to their misunderstanding of God's good creation of the body in marriage. Their hyper-spirituality has become a danger. So... Now, as I, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So here we see that sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. All right. In fact, I would say this verse is one of the most explicit um, that sexual intimacy is for marriage. Because of each should have, because of what Paul is saying, each should have his own. Outside of the marriage union, all other expressions of sex fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. This verse also affirms monogamy. All right? So, Paul's now addressing this flawed view that one should abstain within marriage. He says, each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. So Paul, again, wants to provide for us a right view of marriage. And I want to read for you something in Mark um, chapter 10. I don't think, yeah. Mark chapter 10 is a, is a really good synopsis of, I think will be helpful as we, as we go forward Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. These are the words of our Lord. Um, 
and the issue is he's dealing with the issue of divorce. Um, and I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of this. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage then is a one flesh union and abandonment of selfish autonomy. All, In fact, when one is married, all other relationships are affected. Our relationship with our family, with friends, with members of the opposite sex, even with oneself. When, when, we got, when Simone and I got married, our relationship with our parents are, is now different. It's not what it used to be. In fact, maybe one of the biggest issues I have with young couples who get married is the parents still want to be their parents in the same way that they've been their parents since they were first born. That relationship changes. Your son, your daughter now belongs to somebody else. Friends. My relationship with my friends change. Priority then has to be given to my wife. We sometimes we, we mock this. Oh yeah, your wife won't let you come over and watch the game. Yeah, you know. Priorities change. How do I honor my wife? Even members of the opposite sex, they change. My relationship with myself is different. The Bible now, that, that union, that one flesh union that, that Genesis talks about, and the Bible views human sexuality as a prime illustration of that union. Now, Paul was a bit ahead of his time. In your notes, I said Paul is a progressive, and so maybe today that has bad connotations. But let's look at verses 2, 3, and 4. And Paul says some pretty um, forward-thinking statements. He talks about this beautiful giving up of one's autonomy for another. He talks about this beautiful mutual self-giving. In other words, and we talked about this last week, you are not your own. The Bible says you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your body is the Lord's. And now Paul is saying not only that, but your body is your spouse's. I'm like going, oh no. You belong to the Lord and you also belong to your spouse. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not insist on its own way. What is, 1 Corinthians 13, what do we call that? The love chapter, it is perhaps one of the great expressions, uh, verbal expressions or written expressions of what love is. One of the things that Paul writes about what love is, is love does not seek its own way. And this is where Paul's going here. There, you are not your own. You belong to the Lord. You are You also belong to your spouse. You do not seek your own way. There is this mutual sharing, not only of assets, but our bodies as well. I know one of the things, again, when I, when I counsel people for marriage, I tell them sometimes to their shock that at this, from this point on, from the time you say I do, um, all of your assets are co-joined. 
and so are your liabilities. So you don't have separate banking accounts. You will combine them. You do not have her money and my money. She does not pay half the mortgage, and it's like, well, we're behind because she didn't pay her half of the mortgage. It's it's y'all's mortgage or y'all's rent. Well, you know what? She didn't she didn't pay for half the food. I buy all the food, yeah. Or I earn more, so I get more. No. There is now a co-joining of assets, but Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking about a co-joining of our bodies as well. That sexual intimacy within a marriage is a spiritual, it is a union, it is a physical and a and a spiritual union, but your body even has autonomy, bodily autonomy now is, uh, is limited. There is a mutual sharing. And so sex is not a weapon to wield, nor is it a lever to move one's spouse to one's will. And here's, so, so that was really, pretty progressive because notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says, um, if he'd simply said, but because of temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife stop, nobody in Corinth would have batted an eye. But he didn't stop. He said, and each woman her own husband. And then he goes on and he says, the husband should have, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. If he had simply said likewise the wife to her husband, nobody would have batted an eye. Says the wife has authority over the man's body in this case. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Again, the, uh, the Corinthian church would have said, yeah, no big deal, of course. But when he says the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, this was very radical thinking in these days, perhaps maybe even today. So Paul is kind of getting at this issue. He is dealing with that this matter of sexual intimacy within the institution of marriage. And he says this, he says... Um, as he goes on, he says, do not deprive one another. And I want to stop there. Do not deprive one another. This word actually has the idea behind it to rob or to steal. And so Paul envisions sex as a means of serving one's spouse. And Paul likens abandonment of conjugal relations as to reneging on a debt. Husbands owe their wives a debt meeting her physical needs, including loving her as Christ loved the church, giving himself for her, communicating, listening, and providing security. Wives owe owe their husbands of debt, not only to submit as the church submits to Christ, but to meet his physical needs. Robert Munger wrote, husband and wife belong to one another in such a way that both desire to please the other as though they were pleasing themselves. This is a very, um, I don't know, I don't even want to say it would be an unpopular message today. I think it's an unheard of message today. 
Christian sexual ethics have always been odd. The world has always thought them out of touch and out of sync. It's not just today. What Paul's saying here, the Corinthians are going, "Uh, I don't think so. Not according to our worldview. Paul is going all the way back to Genesis, saying this is how the Bible, how God has um, under, has revealed these things. We live in a day and an age where the idol of independence and personal autonomy have infiltr- infiltrated our thinking in ways that we may not realize. But Scripture is the antidote. So remember, Paul is addressing a very specific question. Church members are depriving one another and calling it spiritual. He's saying, do not deprive one another. And I'm not here to get in y'all's business, so how you meet that, y'all discuss it. There is no command from the pastor or even from Paul. Just work that out. How do I lovingly satisfy and, and meet the needs of my husband or my wife? What does that look like? And Paul's not taking in, um, again, this is not a a systematic treatise that is a complete manual on marriage and intimacy. I realize there could be abuse in the past, that there could be situations or physical situations that um, complicate matters. I realize that. Paul's just not, he's saying, don't deprive one another. You don't have authority over your own self. Your husband, your wife um, has a say in all of that. So y'all work it out. Now Paul does does uh, provide uh, an exception. And that is, he says, <clears throat> do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So this is fasting. Basically, this is what it is. It's fasting. So here's what's going on. People are saying, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And married people are saying this. And they're saying, we are spiritual because we have separated ourselves. We are so pure. I never even come in contact, not even a slight brush against my wife. Oh, I'm pure. I'm spiritual. Look how holy I am. And Paul is like, no. You're no more more holy than the people are saying, do whatever you want to do. Y'all are wrong. God has given this for us. It is not to be abused as the libertines are saying, but it's also not to be abused in the opposite extreme is what you're saying. Paul says there might be an exception, and that exception would be... um, what we would call fasting. Um, Abstinence, Paul recognizes that abstinence is not the norm, but he does prescribe a circumstance where abstinence would be appropriate. And it is for a season, and it is by mutual agreement and for prayer. So, perhaps, next October, we have October fast. There seems to be two, two specific or explicit types of fasting in the Bible. The first one is food, and that's primarily what it's talking about. But it looks like also abstinence um, has a 
place. But again, abstinence is not the norm. Their problem is they said this is the norm. Not only is it the norm, but it is spiritual. He says, for a season and by mutual agreement and for prayer. Clarification. Paul does not say that sexual contact makes one impure and hence is a hindrance for prayer. This is what many in the past, and even some today might teach that that would make you impure and therefore you're unholy. God won't hear your prayers. Paul is not saying that. Nor is he saying that abstinence is necessary for devotion to prayer. That if you want to pray, that you must abstain. He's not saying that. He's just saying that there is a circumstance whereby mutual agreement, this, I could see this, this happening. Prayer and married sexual relations are not mutually exclusive, just as prayer and eating are not mutually exclusive. Usually when we fast, we fast from food, but, and it's for a purpose, and it's temporary. None of you have been fasting 100% since October. We've all had a meal. I was with you at Thanksgiving, I know. We ate. So just as occasional fasting does not denigrate eating, occasional abstinence does not denigrate sexuality. But there's a warning, and the warning is the separation should be short-lived. Paul once again acknowledges that human sexual drive can be a tool for Satan, and Satan is a powerful adversary, and abstinence may provide enough of a breach to wreak havoc on God's people. He may ensnare us in our weak moments. And so Paul understands that, um, listen, this could be a good thing. You might temporarily abstain. I understand that. Just make sure that it's by agreement. There's a purpose. It's for a limited time. And then come back together because I know that there can be weaknesses and I would hate, I'd hate for you to end up sinning. So, all right. Now, I suppose if we were, um, one of the things we we, we try to do here is, um, so what's the gospel connection? So I guess if we were one of those cool churches, we would just dismiss you and say, now, I don't know how to put this, be fruitful. But I'll, but I do want to draw some some connections because Paul's goal isn't just to enhance one's fruitfulness in their marriage, but there are some gospel connections that I think are hugely important. So let's consider some of these gospel connections. And for this, the first thing we need to do is we need to go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 18, we read a couple of things. First of all, God has created man, and God has uh, said it's not good for man to be alone. And so he gave Adam Eve, and we have talked about then um, upon that presentation, Adam sings. Um, I think it's the first song in the Bible. 
Um, he is, it is a joyful song. Um, when he sees his wife for the very first time, he is joyful, he sings. But we should also think about, let's, well, let me just look at verses 15 and 18. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And then in verse 18, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Man is a gardener, and he is a steward in God's garden. And it is not good for him to be alone. And this is more than relational. The man needs a helper for the task. And a wife is the God-given, God-blessed provision. And let me just note this really isn't... Some people get really offended by this word, and God gave Adam, Adam a helper. And it's like, oh, so women are just helpers. First of all, you should note that word God uses for himself. All right, It is a divine term. God calls himself a helper. So there is no denigration. There is no patriarchy in this verse. Not only that, it is no less um, demeaning to say that Eve was a helper than it was demeaning to say Adam needed help. Adam needed help. And God provided the perfect provision for what God wanted to accomplish. Adam is a gardener in God's garden. It's not good for him to be alone. He needs a a helper to help him with his task. And marriage is the means that God has provided that he would be glorified on this earth. Marriage is not a mere social convention. It is not a means for garnering a tax benefit from the government. It is a gift that God has given and a means by which God accomplishes his purpose on the earth. We see this especially clearly in in the New Testament where marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 um, through 33, let me just read this entire thing. And it's a verse that's part of it gets really, really skewed by, by people today. But listen. Listen to what Paul is writing. Listen to what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that she might, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Here's the big picture. The big picture is Paul is saying and describing that the marriage relationship reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. It, marriage, you could say, is a living parable of Christ. Just as the Lord's Supper is the gospel scene, marriage is the, the visible understanding of Christ and his church. Christ loves his church and gave himself for her. And the church, joyfully and with loving humility, responds to that action by saying, by by submitting to his commands. And husbands exercise godly headship and wives loving humility. And husbands love wives and wives respect their husbands. This now is a picture of, of the relationship between Christ and his church. What I've said is probably often despised in our culture today, in our society, perhaps even in our churches. As though this means that husbands get to, you know, oppress their wives. I didn't read that. Lay down your life for your wife. That's what I'm reading. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Love her in that way. I I don't see anything where oppress your wife. Make sure she's in the kitchen pregnant and barefoot. I don't see that. It's not there. Husbands, I'll speak to my, I got to use a personal pronoun. Love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. Marriage is a display of Christ and his bride in love together. Marriage is a display of the gospel. That is, Christ lays down his life for his people and they, in response, give themselves to him. We'll go off on a little soapbox real quick. I know when we taught through the book of Ephesians, this was one of those aha moments for me. It changed my com- completely my view on male-female relationships and especially marriage. And from that day on, I'll just speak for myself. From that day on, for me, it was a sin to mock marriage or to make fun of it or to make light of it. And sometimes we do, you know, oh, my wife, you know, that ball and chain. Do you hear me say something denigrating about Simone, you need to say, you have no right to say that. She is God's gift to you, given for your good and for his glory. And I hear we even go to even Christian marriage conferences and stuff like that, and godly people mock it. Or maybe, maybe mock is too strong of a word, but denigrate it. There is no place for that. There is no place for you ladies to, to denigrate your husband. I know we all need maybe a confidant here and there, but we do not take our marriages into the public sphere and into the, to the realm of every group that we're part of and down-talk our spouses. There is no place for that because I do not mock Christ for dying for my sins, and he is my Lord. He's... And... And he died for us. 
it is not a joke and it is not something that we just jest about. So that's just my little soapbox for a moment. Watch our words, watch our tongues, um, understand what God has done for us in, um, in the institution of marriage. So I'll conclude with this. Remember, Paul is correcting a problem, a very specific problem. He is correcting the the problem that denial of physical pleasure does not make one more spiritual. Denial of physical pleasure does not make one more spiritual. That's the issue that he's dealing with. And he is saying, no, you don't have any right to do that. Also, Paul has taught, and Scripture teaches that marriage is good. It is given by God as a gift. Hence, it will be a prime target for satanic attack. We should not be surprised that our relationships are under attack. Because of two things. If, if the church can be divided and if the family can be divided, folks, I think somebody said it wisely, a house divided against itself will not stand. Who said that? Trying to think. Pretty good statement. Now, as we go through this, this particular passage deals primarily for those of us who are married. Um, Paul, in the next few weeks, is going to deal with the validity and the challenges of being single. Notice I said the validity as well as the challenge of being single. All right, so Paul's going to address singleness, whether it's singleness because you've never been, unma- never been married or singleness because um, due to the result of the death of your spouse. But Paul is going to deal with singleness and the challenges. He's also um, going to provide advice on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Um, so again, the, the Corinthian church is dealing with a number of issues that, that we deal with all the time today. He was dealing with the issue of um, husbands and wife living together in mutual submission to one another um, as a picture of the church. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks this day. We thank you for all of your good gifts. For those who are single here, Lord God, um, we pray, Father God, for that. If that is how you have, if that is a gift that you have given, Lord God, we pray that it would be fostered well. For those who are married, Father God, I pray that we would foster our marriage as well and our relationships. If we're thinking about getting married, I pray, Father God, that we would have a view of uh, our future mate um, and see them in light of the truths that you've given to us. Lord, these are big issues, and I know that we have not dealt in detail with them in great detail, but I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to live out your purposes in these days. For you are good and you have blessed us. And so we thank you now in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's